0: Hello Creeps, welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost, I mean host, for today's exciting tale of terror. Starship Troopers, or would you like to know more?
1: Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Horror Vanguard, I am John, otherwise known as the Liquid Guy, joined as always by my co-ghost, Ash. Ash, how you doing?
0: I'm alive, I'm, I'm doing, doing well, and I am proud to announce that I'll be uh, shipping out to the Outer Colonies uh, in a couple of days here, so I'm,
1: I'm doing my part. I just got back from Zygama Beach and that is <laughs> not somewhere I would recommend visiting anymore. Um
0: <laughs> I, I I almost said uh I oh I was expecting you to have joined the Daystrom Institute, but now I'm crossing my like sci-fi streams. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um we are doing some sci-fi horror this week. We're doing some sci-fi horror and I'm so I'm so happy that of all of the sci-fi horror pantheon that we could have chosen. We settled on this one. We are talking about uh, an iconic filmmaker, an iconic film. We're talking about Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers. Uh, How are you feeling about this one, Ash? I...
0: I'm unshakably excited for this. This is going to be amazing. You know, we broke the seal with RoboCop and then that means we have to keep doing Verhoven movies. Oh, completely.
1: Absolutely. Um but I think before we before we kind of get too far into this, I I am I'm kind of shocked that there might be people listening to this show who've never seen Starship Troopers. So Unbelievable. To save them the trouble of just googling the film and reading the plot from the IMDB page, this is what Ash does. Ash does this for you. So Ash, what is Starship Troopers all about?
0: Every half-baked criticism of Starship Troopers places the bugs as a metaphor for communism. A collective force that has obliterated the individual in favour of some churning, faceless mass. A foolish discourse. But what is the reality of this? Our capitalistic society offers us no individual freedom, at least not in any true sense. We are free as individuals to the extent that hundreds of otherwise identical toothpaste brands constitute freedom. Further, we only have this freedom to the scale we can afford it. Imagine Starship Trooper Bugs with caverns full of Funko Pop figurines, and you'll get a more accurate Bugs-as-Humans-with-no-individuality metaphor. However, the bugs are not human. It feels strange that I need to say this, but bugs are not humans. When we make analogies to the insectile world, we carry our human baggage with us. Hives don't have queens, at least not in any human sense. The queen bee isn't a hoarder of unearned wealth and power. It is a vital member of its hive with no analogy in the human world. We don't have a gigantic human in the center of every town producing 1,500 human larvae every day, after all. Anthropocentrism, that is favoring the human point of view in any discussion, leads us to these broken analogies. It's not that we can't make comparisons to the non-human world, but rather that we must acknowledge that human queens and soldiers have entirely different functions, histories, and contexts than those of ants and bees. The bugs in Starship Troopers aren't driven by an expansionist economic system that mandates colonialism. The bugs just are. So when critics see the worst in the bugs, they see only the worst in the world they already inhabit. The bugs don't function as a counterposed social and economic model to the fascist United Citizens Federation. They function only to highlight the sheer monstrosity of it. Tuck in your larvae, groom your antennae, and gather the whole colony as we discuss the brain bug that is Starship Troopers.
1: As always, just... Uh, maybe you don't appreciate... I certainly don't appreciate just kind of how poetic cinema can be until I've listened to Ash recap Starship Troopers for me. So, um, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well,
0: uh, this, is, this is a pleasant way to start an episode. I'm feeling fresh. I'm feeling energetic. I'm feeling awake.
1: It has been... Typically slick stuff from both of us there. I think
0: flawless, angelic.
1: Okay, uh, where do you want to start with this? How do you? How do you? What? What? What is this film kind of like? Where is the way in to thinking critically about what some people might dismiss as being like a kind of schlocky, you know, Star Wars knockoff?
0: I. Love this movie to death. Um, this might be the movie that I've seen the most. It's it's probably like a three way tie between this Beetlejuice and Army of Darkness. Ooh, those are that's a hell of a top three. That's a, a very instructive. I mean, not necessarily even top three, but just three movies I've
1: seen the most times. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what 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 makes it, in your opinion, something that's so worth rewatching? Uh, this is this is like, like a lot
0: of Verhoeven's movies. This is a really layered text. There's there's a lot going on in this film, and whenever you watch it, you can key into something new. But also, like I think Verhoeven is really gifted as a filmmaker because you simultaneously get that that depth, that richness with what he's making, but you also get uh, with that just really fun and exciting movies.
1: Yeah. So this absolutely. is this is
0: one of the rare movies where you can just check out and just 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 lounge and enjoy and also like completely key in and go
1: deep on a political reading. Um I think that this film is uh I yeah, let's kind of lay all the cards out on the table first. Um you really love this movie. I think this movie is amazing. Um I actually think this is probably one of those films that I've seen I don't know if it would be in my top three of stuff that I've seen the most times, but it'd certainly be up there. And yeah, precisely for that reason that, you know, you can just enjoy uh, Casper Von Dien shooting space arachnids. But we can also talk about this as the extremely uh, insightful and incisive political critique that Verhoeven puts into so many of his other films. Yeah, the
0: the the ca- Casper Van Dien was just such great casting for this lead role. Like yeah, I I mean like if you're if you're casting someone to kind of be this like like Hitler Jungent uh a uh, man or like child on the cusp of manhood, like Casper Van Dien was like the perfect p- person <laughs> to play Johnny Rico.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um but given that you've we've already broken Godwin's law, um this, <laughs> this is a film, this is a film that yes is about fighting uh Gigantic spiders in space, but this is a film that is unmistakably about fascism, and that is what we're talking about today we're going to be talking about um we're going to be talking about the ways in which Verhoven kind of makes his political critique what what it is he's trying to put across um and how he manages to get away with it basically but this is this i think that's maybe the the easiest and most obvious way into this film is to say that this is a film entirely about the dangers of fascism I
0: think I think that is like if you were to sum up this movie this movie is is strictly about uh, like how how fascism develops in the american context yeah
1: um well i mean an americanized context right because johnny rico is the most american non-american because <laughs> This is not a film that's actually set in America. It opens in Buenos Aires in Argentina. That's true. Yep. Um, so the, I think like the implication is that like we're living in a world that is completely dominated by American capitalist he- hegemony. Uh, so pretty much everywhere is America now, right? Even if you're not, even if you're not in America, you're kind of in America.
0: And, and just like we were talking about with um, Verhoeven's other movie, um, I almost said Space Cop, the red letter media <laughs> uh, ultra low budget cop movie. But no, this um, uh, RoboCop, uh, d- just like with RoboCop, like RoboCop wasn't envisioning a horrible future. It was describing a horrible present. And, yeah. and we are all Americans. We all live in America because the American cultural hegemonic project has, has woven itself through the fabric of, of human society you know so like no matter where you are in the world you can you can get american cultural jokes and stuff like that because we forced our culture everywhere
1: yeah
0: and yeah i definitely think that's 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 part that's like a sci-fi trope right because you see that in star trek too the star trek has the federation earth earth has a singular government but that singular government is like really kind of just an american government even though we have like a lot of a lot of stuff will happen in france and like tng you know, yeah. like the the federation feels like an Americanized military body.
1: So, I guess, I guess the kind of question is then, what does fascism in an Americanized context look like, according to this film? I, I was about to say it looks like Starship Troopers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think like this is probably the best thing to talk about when we when we start talking about this film because like. Starship Troopers has, like, a massive fan uh, presence. Like, people love this movie. It's got a 51% on Metacritic. It has a 64% on Rotten Tomatoes, and the IMDb is 7.2. So these, these, these big review bodies, like these review aggregators, this movie could be described as divisive or even panned. Yeah. And I think the a large part of that, and we'll we'll get to talking about one particular period review in a little bit, but I think a large part of that was that people people were simultaneously reluctant to see a fascist America, and they didn't understand, uh, kind of like it's it's the the satire problem rears its ugly head again, right? Like in order to for your audience to get satire, your audience needs to be sufficiently educated in the subject matter, or they're not going to get it.
1: Yes, absolutely and i think that's proof that actually critics are often like incredibly quick to dismiss a film when it makes them uncomfortable mhm rather than being something that is actively a kind of aesthetic or technical failure so um yeah this this film is about an americanized fascism which I, I think is really interesting and there are these ways in which it combines like very American like aesthetic and filmic choices like there's a football game it opens in an American high school uh, on on prom night it's like then then there's the boot camp all of this is very hyper Americanized but it's undergirded by what is if you are aware of it, The logical extension of kind of fascist principles that are already well known yeah
0: yeah and and when we get into like uh, one specific character later there's really only one specific instance of Nazi iconography in this movie and the rest Mm. of the fascist aesthetic and symbology was just drawn from American culture
1: yeah 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 and we'll get into some of those more concrete examples but maybe it's worth starting with the kind of philosophical implications the the philosophy of the world that this film is taking place in which probably rests upon a key distinction that's brought up really i i think in one of the first major scenes these no it's it's right at the beginning right it's the very yeah. opening scene uh which is a discussion in the class about the distinction between citizens and civilians um with the amazing uh, Michael, Michael Ironside <laughs> as, as the civics teacher that you wish that you had, um, uh, Mr. Radchak. Um, and he, he kind of lays out this distinction in the world between civilians and citizens, and that citizenship has certain kinds of perks. For example, you get to vote. So it's, not a, it, it's no longer a democratic system um and you get to vote you get uh we find out you get various other kind of advantages in life if you're a citizen um and civilians are just people who have not given service to the state um what do you think of this distinction
0: i i think it's really interesting how verhoeven frames this space because there there's there are some things where it's like oh, they've taken away the right to vote for non-citizens, but we live in a society where non-citizens have no right to vote. You know? Uh, and yeah. it's like, that. no, we already have that part. Like, that's not a, a scary new thing that this film develops. That's that's an extant part of our, our, our lived system. And there's a lot of, like, other aspects of citizenry in the Starship Troopers universe that we'll get into that are just, like, a hair's breadth away from what's already going on. Yeah. You know? And, like that's the space that i find really interesting about the citizen non-citizen distinction and also like the way you earn citizenship is with military service yeah and that really strongly maps on to like the fact that like recruitment into the military in the united states is ubiquitous to american culture you know if you're, if you're watching a marvel movie you are watching a a propaganda piece designed in part by some branch of the military yeah and not to mention the fact that schools have military recruiters on campus or they don't get access to federal funding and like the the military apparatus is just at every point in society yeah
1: and the point is here that like anyone can be a civilian and anyone can be a citizen but that distinction is enforced by your willingness to commit violence in the name of the state. Yeah. Um, because it's the state. Uh, because violence is the ultimate kind of legislative authority. This is what this is what Michael Ironside's character says explicitly at the beginning of the film, that the own, that violence has solved more conflicts than anything else in the history of the world. So if you want to solve conflict, then you have to be interested in and willing to act violently and this is this is logic that would be recognizable to a whole variety of fascist intellectuals from the 20th and 21st century oh yeah <laughs> like so and it isn't just it isn't just violence done in your own interest it's violence done for a higher cause right it's what it's uh violence done for the kind of because you have to make what is it that um, Radcliffe says? You have to make uh, all of human life your own personal responsibility. Like I say this is it's 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 so I love that people kind of like misread or don't get this level when the when this level of meaning when at the very beginning of the film the film explicitly says this world is completely and a hundred percent fascist, <laughs> <laughs> and here's why that's bad. Um, yeah. So yeah, I. I think I think it's really interesting and really important that it kind of just lays it all out right at the beginning.
0: And it's like it's it's not even it's not even just a thing that get away or that they get out at the beginning. It's it's through the entire text of the film, right? Like uh, Neil Patrick Harris's character, Carl Jenkins, um, by by the end of the film, he is he he goes from just kind of being like a a proto fascist character, all and like a friend of our main trio, uh, all the way to the end of the movie where he is a full blown SS officer. And, and he he is willingly sacrificing countless human lives to conduct experiments on how the bug culture operates um, and yep and that is that is contrasted constantly with these swarms of like arachnid praying mantis looking insects and the the insects are just constantly throwing away their disposable frontline soldiers while the humans are just constantly throwing away their disposable frontline soldiers yep the the parallels here are very intentional on on Verhoeven's part and just
1: very very apt. Uh yeah, absolutely. And I think I think the choice to make it a kind of Americanized fascism is really interesting. Um we we said right at the top that like Casper van Dien is like per- picture perfect casting. Um as this kind of, you know, i uh, idealized aesthetic type for the fascist man but what i find really kind of I- insightful actually is the way that this film kind of tracks him as a character and shows just how kind of easily and happily a an american bourgeois will become fascists because it it gives them it solves the kind of existential question for them like american the american middle class would quite happily lean into fascism because it would solve all that all the nagging doubt of like well what do you do with your life what's the meaning of it you know his his uh, he he comes from money he's very rich he's economically secure um and people always worry about you know a lot of kind of media discourse talks about oh it's like white working class people but no like fascism has always emerged from the middle classes always um because it solves this question of like, how do I give life meaning? You do it in service to something greater than yourself. And his dad, his dad actually goes, "Oh no, don't worry about, don't enlist. We're going to take you off on this amazing holiday." Mm-hmm. Uh, and he rebels against it. So it's this great, it's this great kind of narrative of like how the American middle classes will inevitably and like joyfully embrace fascist violence in order to give themselves some kind of self-identity and meaning
0: yeah yeah and i think like, i think another huge part of his parents like being like oh don't you don't have to enlist because the issue for of citizenship is a non-issue if you're wealthy yes it's not it's not a factor and we see that with um dizzy um the the second half of the film love interest for um rico but, like, she in, uh, initially has no aspirations to join the military. She's, she's going to become a professional football star. And, yes. and it's, kind of, it's kind of implied that, like, citizenry doesn't matter if you're in the upper echelons of society. And so, like, that, that is the driving force of fascism. It's, it's because for these people who are ultra-wealthy or, or have uh, fundamentally higher access to power, fascism doesn't matter. You, 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 you can buy a safe exit to somewhere else, you, you can buy your way through a, a lot of horrible consequences that are going to happen to people who don't have that kind of access to power.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you know, if you are already economically wealthy and your parents are offering to take you off somewhere safe and take you off on an amazing road trip, how do you rebel? How do you kind of exert that kind of teenage autonomy? uh you you become a fascist. there's a kind of inverse relationship that you can see in um a lot of the main thinkers of the Frankfurt school. All of their fathers were like wealthy bourgeois industrialists, and so all of their sons became marxists and and communists as a way of as a way of rebelling against that
0: Beto o'Rourke, Kamala Harris. google their parents uh and yeah i think i think you're completely correct in a lot of aspects of this um there's one very specific reason that rico joins joins the military and we'll get into that um a little bit later in the episode um for i think a really important discussion that this film is trying to have on gender Hmm. um but i think another important thing to discuss in fascism the american context and what's going on in this movie is sports yes Yes. Like, at the at the opening scene of this movie, we get a we get like the the beginning of like a lot of character conflict developed through a sports scene. Johnny Rico is a football star. He's on the same football team as Dizzy. Uh, Dizzy Dizzy likes Johnny. Johnny likes Carmen. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and Carmen Carmen has a crush on uh, this character named Xander, who uh, is playing for the rival football team. Right. Uh, so like, there's this complicated like love quadrangle going on. And, like you know we see we see like a lot of like um triumph of the will but American flavor you know like like roaring <laughs> roaring fans in a stadium uh, garish football uniforms like like these, this theatric display of physicality
1: yeah it's like if 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 Lenny Reifenstahl was the artistic director for the Super Bowl, this is what he would get. <laughs> But it, like, it, it, it continues through the rest of the film,
0: right? Like, the, re- the reason why uh, uh, John, Johnny Rico is originally favored when he's in boot camp is because he and Dizzy use their, their football teamwork skills and his athletic ability to to win a combat exercise. Um, and then, uh, you know, like, there are several scenes throughout the film where Johnny and Dizzy are using their football skills and their football know-how to, to complete military action. Yep. And I think, like, the, the, the movie is inviting really important conversations on sports and nationalism and fascism that I find really interesting as kind of, like, this, like, subtle, the subtle, like, uh, ambient noise that's going through the whole film.
1: Yeah, there's this kind of aesthetic quality to it. Um, Umberto Eco writes about this in his essay on Ur fascism This idea of the valorization of the body, uh, what the body can do. Because, like, All of the football moves are like completely absurd. (laughs) You know, it's like they're diving 25 feet and they're like getting thrown into the crowd, and like all of the checks are like hyper violent. So it's there is this kind of stylization of what the body can do, and the body can always like go beyond its own limits uh, in this film. So, which, which again, it's not an accident in, 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 yes you can play it up as kind of just part of the the atmosphere or as part of the kind of aesthetics of the film but even that kind of what seems to be like a really incidental detail is uh is in service to its its kind of political critique about the role of fascism yeah yeah
0: and and, and as well as that the role of our extant cultural institutions in enabling fascist
1: thought yeah and the, the, all of society is, is generated, is is hooked up this way. It's wired this way, right? Where do our three, uh, Neil Patrick Harris, Johnny Rico, and um, Carmen... Um, I like how Neil all... Patrick Harris is just Neil Patrick Harris. Do you know? <laughs> He's Neil Patrick Harris and everything. Uh, Barney from How I Met Your Mother, Johnny Rico, and, and Denise Richards. Um so we immediately, the transition is so, is so kind of jarring when you, when you stop to think about it. We immediately go from, it's prom night, they're all dancing together, to the next day, they're at the spaceport, all about to ship out to boot camp. Um, and there's a great uh, detail, which I honestly didn't pick up on t- until the last time that I watched the film, which is that Carmen turns up late um, because her dad wants to help her pack. And she's like, oh, that was kind of cute, but he was acting like he might never see me again. Uh, and, and then suddenly I was like, oh yeah, of course. All of these parents are sending off their kids and must know that loads of them are about to get murdered for the, for, for the glory of the nation. Um, so yeah, and they immediately all get shipped off the boot camp. And there is something so kind of... All I put in our show notes was uh, stairs in Foucault when we go <laughs> immediately from school to a militaristic boot camp uh you know it's like you hold up the two pictures to to Foucault and it's like the school on one side and the drill sergeant on the other and it's just him going they're the same picture (laughs) yep I I think that
0: I think that's incredibly powerful how that works right like our, our entire system exists to service capitalism Right, and, like, ca- capitalism and fascism are, you know, you, you crank capitalism up to the extreme and you get fascism. And you, uh, you yes. see that so clearly, like, in, in the classroom scenes, too. Like, what are they doing in school? They're receiving fascist lectures from a, a military officer, right? Or they're, they're dissecting bugs. They're literally dissecting the, this culture's sworn enemy, in, in high school education in order to to better understand how
1: to kill them yeah yeah they're either listening to fascist political philosophy or they're practicing eugenics and and vivisection mm-hmm. um and that's all done in the name of education and then we immediately go into the boot camp and it's the it's exactly the same thing all it is is an intensification of those of what was already there what do you think of what do you think of um of the boot camp and uh drill sergeant uh what's his name? Zem? Zim? Zim, Sergeant Zim. Sergeant Zim, yeah.
0: I love it. I love so I love I love Sergeant Zim. I love the boot camp scenes. Um one because they're a lot of fun, and I and I think they're supposed <laughs> to be fun on on several left for for a bunch of different purposes, right? Because like we're we're watching child soldiers. These people just graduated high school and like when we get to later scenes in the movie, like um when they're when they're starting their final assault on the bugs, uh Rico is literally leading child soldiers into battle. Yeah. Like a yep. lot of a lot of <laughs> the young people in that crowd are like literally not even high school age. And like yep. it's it's really jarring. And so like, we have these like fun boot camp training scenes and like I think like, you know, Verhoven, you know, like I almost said Space Cop again, Robocop and <laughs> Starship Troopers, <laughs> perfect films. Because we're getting all these filmic things that we need, right? We're building characters. We're understanding dynamics, right? There's tension that's being generated. But then at the same time, like, all of this fun is incredibly jarring because these are children that are rushing off to die. And and yeah. Sergeant Zim is is just beating into them how worthless their lives really are, right? He, he yep. like, the very first scene we, we 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 see with him, he just shatters, like, he, a, he he gives some guy a compound fracture in their arm. And then in another scene, he throws a knife through someone's hand and, like... Yeah, we live in like a sci-fi world in *Starship Troopers*, where you can heal these things with minimal consequences. Because we see these characters later those same days, and they seem to be functioning just fine. But it's ingraining into them that their physical well-being is irrelevant.
1: Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, and it's it's very, it's. I think I think you're really right where, when he's kind of talking about tone being really important here. Like these scenes are a lot of fun uh, because it's like, it's kind of, it's kind of cheesy and it's a bit over the top. And then we get another, we get another kind of combat exercise that they're going into. And suddenly like you start to see the first inklings that these people might not really be that prepared for actual violence. And maybe that's sort of the point. So there's the live fire exercise. Rico at this point is like the squad leader. He's the golden boy, the protege. Uh, Somebody takes off their helmet because it's not working. There's an accident and they just get like the back of their head just kind of blows up. And it's this, the way that it's filmed, like the violence stops being this kind of like slightly goofy, fun. Look at the staff sergeant being so being so authoritarian and it becomes like shockingly real. Mm -hmm. um and i think there's another there's another scene later on when we get exactly the same thing happening so it's like the kind of worrying thing is all of this indoctrination this school to the military pipeline is not really interested in keeping them alive oh yeah clearly not
0: you know it's, it's it's the uh they're they're just analogous to the replaceable bug soldiers
1: yeah sure absolutely
0: they, they sure. are the society they're trying to defeat. But they're worse than the society they're trying to defeat. We'll get into that, I think, in a second here. But, like, you know, like, like it, it, it becomes really jarring once you wake up to the fact that what we're watching is child soldiers gearing up to die for fascism. And then, like, yep, the peppy absolutely. music, they're the, like, Johnny, we're going to run that sports maneuver. The, the, okay, here's here's the fucking football play, Johnny. We're going to run it. And then Johnny's like, what? Oh, yeah, let's do it. And, like, that's fun. That's exciting. That's great filmmaking. It's absolutely terrifying.
1: <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, because, as you say, these they're not interested in these people living. What they're interested in is turning them into cannon fodder.
0: So, so we're talking more now about the the actual combat itself, and I think we need to spend some time talking about our combatants. Who yes. who are we fighting in Starship Troopers?
1: Who's who's the enemy? We are we are fighting a a. Uh, variety of of antagonists collectively known as arachnids um most commonly represented as a, um, their soldier type are sort of like giant uh giant spiders with big beaks is essentially how i would qu- qualify them um they are uh, a insect uh, based civilization um and just as so after our to kind of contextualize this in the plot just as johnny is about to uh, walk out of boot camp having having washed out after taking we didn't even talk about the fact that he kind of takes physical uh, punishment for, for 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 um the death of his of a squadmate yeah. he's just about to walk out and it turns out there's been an attack by these arachnids um yeah how would you kind of talk about the the arachnid civilization. Uh, I think a lot of interesting things are going on with the Arachnids, right? We already
0: talked about the parallels that we see, right? You know, we have um, Neil Patrick Harris's character becoming an SS officer who like not only is, is physically in control of everyone because he's, he's in the higher echelons of the military, but he's also, uh, he's like a proto psychic. He has some latent psychic power and he he uses that later on to help uh, Johnny Rico save Carmen when she's been captured by the bugs and, you know, we, we find out that um, Neil Patrick Harris's character doesn't do that because it's good. It's the good or right thing to do to save their friend. He does it because Carmen is one of the best pilots they have and they need all the skill they can get. Yeah. You know, it's not altruistic. It's out of pure calculation. And so, like, the, the meaningful difference in space between these two societies just completely dissolves. And that makes yeah. it all the more startling that, like... Uh, the, the fascist starship troopers themselves are
1: just constantly attempting to slaughter them. Oh yeah, like, it's, it's basically they try and commit a genocide um, because there is a meteor. There's a meteor that comes out of the arachnid-controlled zone of space and ends up um, destroying Buenos Aires. And um, <laughs> ash can you just read verbatim point i on our shared document <laughs> <laughs> okay uh uh this is a little lengthy
0: everyone so try and keep up carl is a bad person uh or was it a different uh, point yes I? sorry sorry oh, okay. Uh, point, okay hang point, on I can't point
1: get one it. subsection one in point f
0: <laughs> our notes are thorough if nothing else um colonialism bugs don't shoot first
1: they the the, the iraq the Iraqi civilization did nothing wrong
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's intimated both by the film and in the, verhoeven's commentary that um it's it's highly debatable, and indeed very likely that the bugs didn't uh, launch that meteor, even though that's a that's a a thing they're capable of doing. You know, it's 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 heavily intimated that the the kind of the military in the society has has used that as pretext to complete a genocidal colonial war in space.
1: Yes, and this is this is another important point to make about any kind of fascist ideology, which is eventually war becomes necessary. So, I mean, if you if you think about it, you've got millions of, of young people signing up for two years military service, um, and no matter how good your indoctrination, they're not will they they won't just sit around and do nothing for two years. You've you've educated them for the past I don't know decade about the importance of dying for the for the planet. So eventually, you need something that is gonna give them something to do. So war is not just the kind of byproducts of a fascist um society war is necessary to the uh ongoing functioning of that society
0: yeah i i think you're completely correct about that it is it is a prerequisite in fact
1: yeah and who is it who is it that's there to do the dying uh, to do the fighting to do the uh getting slaughtered in increasingly grisly ways um is is the mobile infantry which predominantly seems to be made up of like uh the economically disadvantaged or working class people or people who are facing other kind of challenges that they need to try and overcome um but yeah so so war is war is a necessity for the society right yeah yeah it is it is absolutely required right like
0: because we have you know we have the infamous lenin quote fascism is capitalism and decay yeah right and, and i mean like you could also equally argue that you know fascism is capitalism functioning as intended <laughs> it's not it's not capitalism decaying and failing it's capitalism doing literally what it's supposed to do and that's concentrate wealth and power into fewer and fewer and fewer hands but i i think what we're seeing in this movie is is literally what goes on today right like we, we, have, we have the reserve army of labor. We have this massive, quote-unquote, surplus population, right? Capitalism cannot sustain everyone. Fascism can sustain even fewer people. So what do you then do with all of those extra people? You go to war. Yeah. And that, that's what we're seeing in this movie. We're seeing, like, all of these people need to be disposed of, and we need a societal apparatus that makes them want to be disposed of.
1: And you need you need uh, an enemy.
0: Yeah, which and in this case are uh,
1: bugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and what I find really interesting is how the arachnids are presented in this film. So you have them as both uh, super dangerous, extremely lethal, a civilization that is kind of taking over, and at the same time, they're also like not very like it's actually mocked the idea that arachnids could be intelligent you know that they might have kind of higher order thought or they might have their own particular civilizational organization so they're both they're both dangerous and highly organized and at the same time completely less than human
0: yeah yeah i i think i think that's the, that's the the way to read how fascists define their enemies you know, like, I mean, like, look at how the Nazis talked about uh, the Jews and all the other populations that they tried to commit and committed genocide against. Right. Yeah. You know, like they're, they're simultaneously everywhere, ultra powerful and in total control of everything in society that's gone wrong and incredibly corrupt and weak and easy to destroy. Yeah. And I mean, like, look, look at the way that the contemporary right talks about uh, uh, the trans community or about anti-fascists right like like how how is it, how how is antifa a decentralized concept uh bussing hundreds of thousands of people around the country in total stealth in a way that the government is fundamentally incapable of detecting and made of a bunch of like soy addled
1: like <laughs> i don't know man children like <laughs> yeah uh antifa is both like a massive military operation funded by someone and is going to take over every institution and at the same time is just a bunch of like soy boy losers who, who can't do anything.
0: Yeah. And no, like the, this, this is the necessary contradiction that fascism has to use to create its enemies. Because the, the thing about fascism is that it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have enemies in, in like the actual sense of having an enemy. You know, it, it has to, it has to construct this perfect idealized threat. And what is the perfect threat? It's something that, is super super easy to defeat, but is also the most heroic possible thing you can fight against.
1: Yeah, precisely. Um, and as uh, to quote a problematic fave, uh, Zizek, whenever you are in, whenever you come across a contradiction, you are in the presence of an ideology. Like it's not it's not that they it's not that they're wrong or but they are. It's not that they don't know that they're being. It's not that fascism isn't aware of this contradiction. That contradiction is integral to how fascist thinking operates.
0: Zizek is truly the bug or the brain bug of left thought. It's <laughs> <laughs> going around with that straw. Um, but I think I think this leads us kind of away from the bugs and into another thing that I think this movie. It, it's trying for a lot of interesting ideas, but I, I think like this might be the most insu- less su- the least successful part of the film. Uh, let's mm. like, do you want to move into the gender politics of Starship Troopers?
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah. Let's do let's, it. Let's do it. Let's let's do that. So where should we where should we start? <laughs>
0: so okay, we have we let, let's let's pick apart the love quadrangle that creates the baseline for, for the gender dynamics in this film. We've got Johnny Rico, who's in love with Carmen, but Carmen, we don't really ever get much inside of her character, but for whatever reason, she's simultaneously entertaining the affections of both Johnny and Xander, right? Uh, Johnny, yeah. Johnny goes on to join the Roughnecks, you know, like they're the mobile infantry, they're the full struggles to die. Xander is uh, in pilot school. She, she's he's Carmen's pilot instructor the fourth yep. the fourth player in this romantic quadrangle is dizzy uh johnny's football coach uh dizzy dizzy has always loved johnny uh but J- johnny's affections have been elsewhere this is a love quadrangle <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, that that's the basis of this film um at least in terms of the gender dynamics audiences hate carmen right uh, uh there are there are so many cut scenes and cut dialogue to this film that, that gave Carmen more character in space, audiences hated them because they hate Carmen. And, and it's huh. because Carmen is entertaining both of these affections, right? So we have this incredibly reactionary misogyny that winds up, that, that, that was experienced by test audiences that wind up shaping how the film comes together in the end. Yeah. And that, that's like that's like the baseline because in the end of the film, uh, uh, spoiler warning, if you've never watched our show, we don't care about those. <laughs> 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 watched our show. If you're watching this right now, I'm not sure how you're doing that. Um, but, you know, like, uh, Dizzy's character winds up dying in the end. She's killed by bugs. Um, and this, this is after, uh, you know, like, her and Johnny have sex for the first time. She tells Johnny that she loves him. You know, it's this really emotional scene. Our hero and and, and the girl get together. Um, she dies, <laughs> like, yep. 15 minutes almost, later. Almost immediately afterwards. <laughs> yeah, just snap, she's gone. And, like... You know, like, Verhoeven defends that decision because he was portraying war, and war is shredding and brutal. And, you know, like, the people you like, your friends, the ones you're fans of, the people you're in love with, they're probably going to get hurt or worse. Yeah. Um, But, like, I think this creates, like, an interesting beginning for the foundation of our gender dynamics, because right off the bat, we've got some, like, classic misogyny where, like, a man can entertain multiple affections, but a woman, if she entertains multiple affections, why, she's a harlot, Uh, unto thee a scarlet
1: a carmen oh yeah um but let's let's be um let's be real Uh, that is not what makes carmen a bad person
0: no um uh, carmen is a horrible person and it has nothing to do with the fact that she's trying to have two (laughs) boyfriends that is the least (laughs) awful thing she does
1: yeah what's what's awful about her is that within uh like weeks of joining this um Colonialist, imperialist force that's designed to commit genocide. She goes, "This is what I want to do for the rest of my life." Yeah. Or as she puts it, she's gonna go career because she wants she wants a command. She wants to be a captain of a starship, Um, which basically means she wants a greater role in, uh, like droning bug
0: children. Yeah, she, she, she wants to and actively desires to do the most to genocide she can possibly accomplish.
1: Yeah. And, that, that's, and that, that's, that's, that's why she's a bad person.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think this is part of the film that, like, so Ver, Verhoven and the, the scriptwriter intentionally set out to portray a world that was more gender and ethnically uh, uh, equal, right? <clears throat> um, because the, at one point in the movie, the head of the military steps down and is replaced by a black woman. You know, we see that the the leader of, uh, or like the, the person who's a captain of the ship that Carmen is piloting as a woman, um, you know, like the football captain, a woman, you know, men and women uh, fight alongside each other in this military. They shower together, right? Uh, like s- sexuality and kind of gender depression have been slightly decoupled, according to the text of the film. Yep. But what what this is failing to kind of discuss is that like, Th- this is kind of like a liberal appraisal or in this case a fascist appraisal of equality right it's like oh everybody everybody can serve when it comes to our genocide uh expan- genocidal expansion of empire you know and like it's not yeah. it's not actual liberation it's just like it, it's it's the the standard the standard clapback tweet more women drone pilots or whatever <laughs>
1: yeah more female drone pilots um and also there are several things in the film which kind of show that there are other kind of repressive forces which have come into play here um there is that famous scene uh where as you have said everybody showers all together there are co-ed showers um and they go around and they talk about the reasons that they've all decided to join up uh and there's one uh female character who says that she's joined the mobile infantry because they want to have babies they want they want to be a parent and you can and it and I think it's something like they say it's easier to get a license if you've served, so you need to, you need a license to to have children, which shows that there is still this kind of fascist overall control of the body at work, even yes. if you go, well, all bodies are equal, no, all bodies are equally controlled mm-hmm. for the service of the state, yeah, and that's like.
0: Like, if, if you listen to the kind of, like, um, director's commentary, Verhoeven is intentionally making or trying to make what he would consider a feminist society. But I think it's, it's hampered by his inability to, to kind of, in this particular film, kind of see beyond those gendered politics. Mm. And, like, you're, you're absolutely right. Like, we, we get, like, throughout this whole movie, you see, like, these bizarre depictions of gender equality that when you actually press them even slightly they're they're not gender equality right they're 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 just aesthetically equal yeah yeah exactly but the ties the tie i mean i'm glad you mentioned the shower scene right because the shower scene is kind of infamous um so you get you get the entire um uh, johnny rico's mobile infantry unit like they're all naked in the same shower and it's men and women together and there's nothing sexual about it you know like no one no one's making comments no one's shot in a way that's sexually suggestive you have the standard hollywood problem where like you can show much more female nudity than you can show male nudity but those are a little bit external to the text um but like an interesting like behind the scenes fact is that like none of the actors really wanted to do that scene um the set that they built for that scene was an indoor set and Mm. they were shooting outside in wyoming for most of the movie and every time it would rain All of the actors would get really nervous because they would be like, oh, it's a rainy day. We got to do some more of our indoor shoots. And the shower scene was the one that everyone dreaded. Um, And so when the day came to shoot it, a compromise was reached. That if Paul Verhoeven would shoot the scene naked, the actors and actresses in the scene would also go naked. Paul Verhoeven stripped off his clothes and filmed that scene.
1: (laughs) Well, you know to be honest i'm sort of the of the opinion that if you're going to ask actors to do anything that you yourself would not be willing to do it that's you know that raises some interesting questions around what is the authority and role of a of a director well i think it i think it honestly
0: it creates a better example of of a practice of gender equality than the the film which has like the female drone pilots you know like yeah like you you have the situation where uh paul Verhoeven is the man in charge of this set you know he he has the power he he's at the top of the hierarchy he's he has a nearly unilateral control right like like and of course like it's not that simple a lot of people put their talent into a movie there's a lot of push and pull and a lot of directions right um but but the director is the, or- the like the orchestrator at the center of all of this action yeah. And like like that that is a moment of equality because that's him stepping down from that post. That's him relinquishing that power. To some yeah. incredibly minor
1: degree. Well, yeah, and I think there's a the right, there's the interesting distinction here between being naked and being nude, right? So to be being naked is a natural state that everyone enters into. To be nude is to be naked to be the object of a gaze for another. Um that's, that's, that's the distinction that, that like art critics like John Berger would make so like the shower scene is the scene where everyone's naked but it's not the same thing as ha- having people be nude right because like you say it's not framed in that way but it's interesting that that's the moment where you kind of go well maybe there could have been you know maybe there is a kind of interesting potential future gender politics but we're, we're still having to work through this horrible fascist society to get to see it
0: yeah yeah no i I think i think that that is completely correct and and i think i think another important thing that this demonstrates is that like fascism won't necessarily look and operate like we historically know fascism to look and operate yeah and this this i think will lead us on into another point nicely but like cnn and other major news media outlets are completely duped by by the rise of quote-unquote dapper nazis about nazis that don't look like cartoonish british skinheads Oh yeah, completely, completely baffled media because because they just m- tweaked their aesthetics, and were able to slide under the radar of of virtually every discerning journalist <laughs> at the top of the media hierarchy, and like that's that's only because that they changed their aesthetics, and so so when we look at when we look at Starship Troopers, one of the things that the movie is telling us is that we need to be much more critical of how we're appraising our media because the aesthetics will change, and an American fascism is going to have really cool football. Like, like that is something that Starship Troopers is kind of like elucidating to us that like, you know, like these aesthetics will shift around, but it's still fascism. It's still this thing that needs to be annihilated.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And not only will it have a really cool football, uh, it will re- have really good programming. It's going to have a really good media. Everything's <laughs> going everything's, to everything's look really cool and exciting. Um, And this kind of brings up, maybe one of the most quoted things about the film right the the very verhovian um trick uh, which was used in robocop of creating um like in-universe newsreels to show what's going on in the world Uh, and in starship troopers what this is often done with is a kind of little excerpt of something followed by the phrase would you like to know more uh, because even the media is a way of recruiting uh, the viewer into this fascist society.
0: Yes, <laughs> that is completely correct. And like, uh, so Verhoeven intentionally made this movie in in concert with, or, or to be in concert with Noam Chomsky and um, Edward S. Herman's manufacturing consent a phenomenal read on, on how the media operates inside of the American context. Um, and when indeed it's very applicable to many other media bodies, but like the, the big takeaway is, um, media, like media systems carry out, uh, support. They're, they're, they're a support character for larger fascistic programs. And they do this by, by creating propaganda for them. Right. And then this propaganda, like these media uh, bodies are structured in this way because of market forces, internalized assumptions, self-censorship, and often without um, overt coercion. And that's something that we see kind of like through the entirety of this film is there's not a lot of overt coercion uh, keeping a lot of this like fascist system alive and starship troopers. It's just people buying into really effective state propaganda and media.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because after a certain point, you don't need the coercion. You don't yeah. need to. You don't. You don't need to coerce them because people will willingly go along with you.
0: I, th- I um, think it's um. Oh, go on.
1: No, go on. Sorry. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, I think I think it's really telling how our media reacted to this movie. I mean, like, like uh, when, when this film came out, the Washington Post dragged it. Uh, uh, they, called, they called Verhoeven perverse. They, they, they called this movie fascist. And, and I think the, the concluding line was something like, it's worth it if you like seeing bugs being splattered or something like that, but, like, that's it. <laughs> and, like, so, so many other, like, major media critics hated this film right and i i think uh, i can't help but think a large part of that is this kind of self policing that is part of modern day media especially in relation to things that would directly challenge it right the segments that run like it's just like the commercials in Robo- robocop right we have segments throughout this movie that are like little news snippets and they're designed to f- to feel like a cnn graphic and yeah. and paul verhoeven intentionally designs this stuff to feel like cnn because he's making a riff on how CNN covered the Gulf War.
1: And that that actually the kind of most obvious point there is there's the kind of there is one big sequence that I think I wanted to quickly talk about which is the the invasion of Clandathu the, the 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 Arachnid home world um and like it starts it starts out where you have like you have the 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 Federation News Network uh, news anchor like embedded with the, with the mobile infantry. Um, then they they land and he's giving his report to camera. Um, but at that same time, you have this kind of act these actions of like horrific violence happening just off screen, and you have like you know, you realise that all of these people, all of these, like, characters who've been built up to believe themselves to be, like, invincible super soldiers are basically, like, 19-year-old kids who have never, like, left their home planet before. Um, so I find that, that there's this kind of disjunction happening that's really interesting where they where they land and they, simu- they find out that they're massively underprepared and that violence is real and kind of viscerally shocking and terrifying and, like, literally right next to them, there's a news anchor talking about how they're just gonna like wipe the floor with the enemy, that everything's gonna be fine. We're on this disgusting world where our genocide will be good and pure until Rico runs past and like yells into the camera, you've gotta run away now.
0: Yeah, and I think that like like that speaks to so many things. Like the very concept of embedding journalists in inside of the military like i mean like we, we we see we see in in one of the scenes the, the the journalist is like oh well some people are suggesting that it was our expansion into space that agitated the bugs natural habitat and then i think i think it's even rico's character that that kind of like gets in the gets in the way and he's like hey like like these 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 dastardly bugs bombed my my hometown and i'm here for revenge you know <laughs> yeah. and it's like like when you put the the mouthpiece so close to like the practical arm of fascism you're going to just adopt their point of view and you're not going to threaten
1: it yeah because there is no way of arguing against that is there Where you go, yeah i, I think we should t- <laughs> oh, <laughs> we, yeah, we should on. have revenge on them uh, and you can't go um no because suddenly suddenly you get drawn into a media discourse that you will inevitably lose
0: right and especially like given given the setting too like in that moment like there's no way to win that conflict <laughs> it's cuz that's not that's not like a that's not like a winnable argument and i think that that's a lot of what this movie kind of plays into is that like like, like what is what is like the liberal response to fascism it's like oh we we have to sunlight is the best medicine we have we have to win, we have to beat them with arguments and defeat and reason and it's like fascism is literally immune to all of those things you can't debate a fascist you can't you can't use logic with them like like they do not respond to these things
1: it's very interesting that you said that Verhoeven deliberately modelled this on how CNN reported on the Gulf War. Because that made me think of a really famous series of essays by Baudrillard um, called The Gulf War Did Not Take Place, where he makes a kind of very similar argument to the one that we've been making here, which is that the Gulf War, according to Baudrillard, was not really a war, but it was like an act of colossal violence that just masqueraded as a war. Um, Because in the Gulf War, you you know, the American military had, like, ludicrously overpowered um, aerial force, um, didn't necessarily engage in direct combat, just basically carpet-bombed huge swathes of the country, suffered few casualties, and, like, people didn't really know very much about how many um, Iraqi soldiers and civilians had actually died, so... It's not to say that the war didn't happen. He's just saying that, like, it was—it wasn't really a war. It was mediated and presented as a war to the people back home, but actually, what it was was just atrocity that pretended to be a war. Yeah, I think that's a really good point.
0: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Transition, <laughs> magic—the little, little, little cinema magic going on here. Um. So, so I think I think like this. This will be part of a good way to lead into our uh, end of the episode here. But why do you think that this movie um, is considered to be a fascist film by a
1: lot of critics? Because cr- <laughs> because critics don't don't watch films very carefully, or Accurate. maybe maybe a kind of hotter take is that to admit of its anti-fascist credentials would be to admit. That media and even cultural media has a political valence and influence that critics and reviewers and mainstream film writing often seeks to disavow because if we admit that if they admitted that they might have to admit that maybe being the movie critic for washington post or a film reviewer for fox news's business channel actually makes you complicit in in if not outright fascism, in a politics that is all too easily pushed in that direction.
0: I think you're that's completely my right. Hot, that's my hot take. <laughs> I, I I even think that there's an example in the filming of this movie that describes exactly what you're talking about. So um, all all major Hollywood movies that have like big military scenes or military presence, they often have a military advisor on set. This is somebody with military experience who's ostensibly there to be like, oh no, a soldier would never use that language or hold a gun that way or something like that so that their military stuff is accurate um oftentimes this becomes a bit of a propagandistic job to make the military look good um and starship troopers as we know there are plenty of scenes where the military retreats the military advisor on set was staunchly opposed to ever depicting this american army retreating (laughs) that's 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 actually hilarious (laughs) You know, because that is, the, that is ostensibly against the what, what the media appearance of the mil- American military is. This thing that's never been defeated, that never retreats, um, even though both of those things are wrong. <laughs> and I think that that's a great practical example of what you're talking about and what you were talking about with Baudrillard. And like, oh, this, this, this movie has so many layers.
1: <laughs> what about you? Why do you think some people at the time saw this as a film that was sympathetic to fascism? I, I think,
0: so my, my kind of like, I, I guess, ultra hot take for why a lot of critics saw this movie as sympathetic to fascism is it's because a fascism that's more close to home. Because the fascists in this movie, there's only one black clad SS officer looking guy. Every, everybody else looks like regular Americans. And I think that that created a lot of dissonance for people because they couldn't yeah. imagine a fascist America. Because that's so far afield for kind of like a lot of the imaginary space, especially for what our country's media puts out, right like we're we're the bastion of democracy and freedom, but like imagining a fascist America was a bridge too far to use a quote from the movie and a quote from other things was a bridge too far for a lot of people, so they they weren't able to see the satire and the parody and the social commentary about how America was then in the nineties. Uh, So instead they just reread it as a pro-fascist movie because they weren't able to connect this film with their own lived
1: experience. Yeah, because that's that's too uncomfortable, right? It's too uncomfortable to admit that we may live in a society that is... Oh no, I've said it. We do indeed live in a society. um, We live in a society that is not only vulnerable to um, a fascist politics, but actually in many ways actively encouraging the emergence of one.
0: Yeah, definitely. And that, that that creates such cognitive dissonance that it's easier to just look at this film and be like, oh, Paul Verhoeven made a disgusting pro-fascist movie than it is to look at it and, and, and realize
1: that this is just a chilling look in the mirror. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we should finish with... Um, you said this was from the director's commentary, right? <laughs> yeah. Perhaps... Um, the the takeaway message the takeaway message of Starship Troopers, according to the films, is it the film's director?
0: Yeah. So this is um this this line I think sums up sums up the movie for a lot of our discourse on fascism and Starship Troopers. But in the director's commentary, um, Verhoeven is is talking about um, Neil Patrick Harris's character and whether or not he's a bad guy. And Ver, Verhoeven says, if you see a black uniform. You should say, bad, bad, bad. It's very simple. (laughs) Oh, Behoeven absolutely rules. (laughs) Right. It's so good. I would love to maybe revisit this film one day and, like, get more into things like this. This film's appraisal of of gender politics and feminism is, I think, incredibly interesting. And, like, we have an hour-long episode, and that's not enough time to talk about everything. But I would love to give more space to that conversation, to how this movie treats class, to how this movie treats race. You know, like, like we, we barely touched on the fact that like this is a colonialist genocidal war and, and how that connects in to the emergence of American fascism in the history of the United States, uh, yeah. let alone, um, you know, England and Europe <laughs> and other, um, you know, like colonialist genocidal projects. Yeah, there's so this is such a rich movie.
1: We could talk, you know, we could do a proper kind of deep dive on the philosophy of fascism, the ways in which we can reasonably call, uh, especially the political situation in America uh, and in many other places around the world, uh, proto or neo-fascist in some regard. Um, Yeah, we will have to come back to this one, I think.
0: Yeah, I, w- I would, I would absolutely love to. Like, this is this is another one of those movies where there's just so much to discuss. More in this, in
1: this bug context. discourse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be bugged by that. Hey. Sh- well, see you later, and on everyone. That, <laughs> and on that pun, <laughs> let's stop there. For those of you out in the uh, outer colonies, stay spooky. Ha 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 ha!